Father, we are so thankful for the demonstration of your goodness in so many different ways to us. We thank you that as we gather to worship this morning, there is an expectation that we will meet with you. And I pray that in our time of singing and already celebrating just what the ministries of this church are, that we're reminded that you are good to us and you have met us. And I pray now as we open your word that you would speak to us by your spirit, help us to see ourselves here, but more help us to find you. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen. You may take your seats. As you do that, just to remind you, we are heading into Acts chapter 27 this morning. If you want to take your Bible, your device, however you find these passages, find your way there. It's another one of these long passages. We've been dealing with the book of Acts now for many, many months, and as we have come to the end, we're kind of taking larger chunks because some of it feels a little repetitive. It's very narrative, but it's also very important for us to understand and to complete this whole journey that uh, we've been on with the gospel and the mission being expanded. And Acts 27 is really a riveting account of a shipwreck. It's really what happens through this whole uh, chapter. It's a total shipwreck on the shores of Malta. Uh, on the island of Malta today, there is a bay called St. Paul's Bay. And in that bay, there has been archaeological discoveries, and there are four anchors out past the sandbar in this bay. As we get down to verse 29, you'll realize the significance of that that comes out of this story. So it's one of those moments that kind of archaeological, oh, can't say that, history. And the Bible worked themselves out, right? That there's just some evidence that these things that we read have taken place. And in this account, it stands out as just a vivid recollection of Luke as he's writing this. One commentary I was reading said this, that the details of this chapter regarding first century seamanship are exceptionally precise and its portrayal of conditions on the eastern Mediterranean remarkably accurate. So as Luke is giving us this, it's a first-hand account. Luke writes from his experience for us. Notice in this narrative that we're going to begin reading together in just a moment that this is one of these we passages. Remember we've talked about that? That in and out of Acts, there's times when, when he talks about they were doing this and Paul was doing this, and there's other moments when he's saying we were doing this. He's including himself in the narrative. This is one of those moments. And Luke is right in the middle of what is taking place. And as we read it, just have that in mind, and we'll highlight a few things like that. So we're just going to dive right into it here, get started. Just look at those first two verses. When it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. This is going to be an unforgettable experience for Luke. In fact, I would say it's one of those moments that we probably all have moments in our life that are just seared into our brains. The memories are so vivid and real because of something we've experienced. And Luke, as he's writing this, gives us all kinds of details. In fact, for him, it was literally a life and death experience. And it's one reason why I think he devotes so much space to it. We've commented about that over the last several weeks, that Luke, in these last few chapters, gives an amazingly 
uh, high percentage of his writing to this journey of Paul heading to Rome. And out of all that journey, he devotes this entire chapter to this journey by sea from Caesarea to Rome. And he devotes the space because for him, it was a vivid experience. But of course, the second reason was it became even more vivid because God showed up. God stepped into the midst of what was taking place, and through his messenger Paul, God demonstrated his grace and his glory in some amazing ways. And it all started out simply enough. Paul, as you remember, has appealed his court case to Caesar. When he was before Agrippa and Festus, and as they were challenging him, Paul says that he appealed to Caesar, and therefore they said, well, then to Caesar you have to go. And so he's sending him to Rome. And Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus, those are our main characters that we know. This band of, of uh, Christian disciples that are traveling together, along with some soldiers, board this ship, and off they go. These Luke and Aristarchus, it's a lot of wondering, why are they allowed to travel with Paul? Paul is a prisoner. But it would seem that he was given some privileges as a Roman citizen, but also it would seem that his case had enough interest and support that he was allowed to take with him some supporting people. They maybe were seen as Paul's servants. There is some question if Aristarchus was as well a prisoner because he is talked about as a prisoner later on. But it just seems that Paul has this uh, respect and reputation that he's able to travel. And so he brings these companions, and they all board the ship. And so then we read in verse 3, The next day we put in at Sidon. So this was as they had left Caesarea, and they began the short journey, and they put in at Sidon. And you read this about Julius, and this was an important point, that Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. So as a prisoner of Rome, here is Julius the centurion, the, the leader of this cohort of Roman soldiers and guards, who's allowing Paul to leave the ship, go and visit with friends at Sidon, members of the church, who come and are able to minister to him. I'm sure provide food, provide drink, you know, and encourage him and bless him in some way. And Julius has this respect and understanding of who Paul is and shows him this kindness. All through this story, you'll see this coming up again. So Luke introduces us to Julius in verse 3. And then in verse 4, they take off from Sidon, and there they begin to sail. And they, we begin to read about the first problems of this journey. In verse 4, it says, Putting out to sea from there, we, see, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And it's good to have a map in front of you as you read this passage, so I'm providing one for you this morning. might not be great to see. If you've got a map in the back of your Bible, you can look at that. But it's that red line that we're going to follow. I tried at one point this week for about two minutes because I just got too frustrated. I thought, I wonder if I could make that little line move for you. I, no, I can't. <laughs> so you got the whole thing there. But you can see they started off at the right-hand bottom from Caesarea. They moved up to Sidon. And then from Sidon in verse 4, it says they sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds are against us. They're trying to get from Sidon up to that tip of Asia. It would have been easier to cross below Cyprus. But because the winds are contrary, they hug the shore, the coast, and they go up and around Cyprus, a much slower route. 
as they're making their way up and around to the, the town of Myra. And as you are remembering all that, as they're sailing, it is a sailing ship. We aren't really used to sailing ships. When we travel today, if you get on a cruise liner, right, the cruise liners don't care anything about wind, right? And it's, they just travel. They've got huge diesel engines, and they just, it's amazing, these hotels, floating hotels that just move wherever they want to go. But remember, in these days, it's all by wind, and they're reliant on the wind. And if the wind is contrary and against you, you have trouble going the directions that you want to go. And so it's important to note the wind is against them. We were already up to the next slide yet. And so when they're in Mer Myra, they change ships. And this is, oh, go back to that picture for me. This is the kind of ship that they change to. This is a Roman grain ship. Uh, it's a cargo vessel. When they're in Myra, Julius goes and finds them a vessel that his prisoners are going to be able to get onto. And as they uh, decide this, they change to this cargo vessel. What's important about this? This is a cargo vessel, and it is made for hauling. It wasn't made for speed. It wasn't made for maneuverability. So even in the world of sailing ships... The ship that they now get onto is just a carrier. It's not like the warships. It's not like the, you know, the movies that you've seen with the three-masted things in these ships and they move directions wherever they want. This is a cargo vessel. It was designed to carry a lot and to just move in one direction, basically pushed along by the wind. No good for really tacking. If you are a sailor and you understand what tacking is, you know, that's when you go up into the wind and you turn and you come back into the wind. And you can kind of go against the wind. These ships didn't go against the wind. That's why it says when it was contrary, they had to just follow the wind. And so as they're pushed along with the wind, we discovered later there's 276 people on board this. There'd be a cohort of soldiers because Julius is traveling with his cohort. There'd be the sailors and there'd be the prisoners, maybe some other passengers. And so they leave Myra. An ideal route, let's go to the next one, go to the map again. So an ideal route for them would be go from Myra and right across to Greece. That short little opening there. But as you read, look at the map, and I'll kind of read what happens. In verses 7 8, it says, We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Snidus. Snidus is right out at the left-hand edge there of Asia. And you can see where that red line takes that big downward curve going south. What it's saying here is, after many days, difficulty arriving off Snidus, in fact, they didn't even arrive. The ship didn't stop at Snidus because when the wind did not allow us to hold our course going west, we had to sail to the Lee of Crete, which is that island down in the middle where the red line goes to. And it says, when we sailed to the Lee of Crete off of Salmone, we moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens, a beautiful port near the town of Lycia. So you see where that red line stops down on the bottom edge of Crete, Fair Havens, a nice port that they were able to get into. 
But what you need to get into your head is listen to all these words. Slow headway, many days, difficulty. The wind would not allow us. We sailed to the lee. We moved with difficulty along the coast even to get to fair havens. You can see this journey, this sailing journey that these, this ship is on is having its problems. In fact, I would say to you, when they got into fair havens and they docked there, there was a huge sigh of relief from everybody on board because it was like difficult sailing. The winds were against them. They weren't really going where the way they wanted to go. But they made it down and with great difficulty got into fair havens. And it was time to rest and to sleep and to think about what was next. And so as they've made that journey, you begin to hear some of the, the problems that they are facing. And this is what Luke is recording. It's why it's so much you understand. It's a firsthand experience. Luke is a part of all this. He's understanding and feeling what was going on. And so then you come to verses 9 to 11, and we'll just read this section to see what goes on next. It says, much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. And Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Now, that's making sense, really. Like, who's Paul to be speaking up here? When you think about Paul, and we'll think about this later, Paul was a pretty well-seasoned traveler. And so as he's observing what's going on, he speaks up and gives this opinion. But rather than listening to him, the centurion listens to the advice and the owner of the ship. Of course, they're the captain. They're the owner. They are on a business journey. They've got a ship full of grain that they're trying to get over to, into Rome. But Paul speaks up and says this. And it's because since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided, and even when you hear that, it's on sailing vessels, they don't do a lot of things by majority. Remember the whole thing, the captain rules? But there was a discussion took place. And the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. Now, that's really not that unreasonable. Phoenix, whoops, go back to my map or go to the map again. Phoenix, you can see on the island, is just at the other end of the island of Crete. It's about a 40-mile journey. It's about a one-day journey for this ship. With the right winds, they should be able to just move around the island a little bit and get over to Phoenix. It would be like your ship stopped in Niagara-on-the-Lake and you were deciding, were you going to winter there or would you rather get around the lake to Toronto and winter there? And if you're the guys on the boat, the crew, where would you rather hang out for a winter? Now, Niagara-on-the-Lake is very beautiful, but when the festivals close down, there's no theater, <laughs> and there's really not a whole lot of nightlife. There's not a lot of good stuff going on. These seasoned sailors were thinking, I think I'd rather get around to Toronto, <laughs> right? Bigger place, more action happening, and we're going to have to winter somewhere. The harbor was actually a little better harbor, too. 
So in that discussion, they thought, no, let's, let's plan to get to Phoenix. Because, you see, we've got to shut down for the winter. We know that in Hamilton. Hamilton Harbor shuts down every year for the winter, right? And it's saying that much time has been lost, sailings become dangerous because it's after the Day of Atonement. They're getting into late October, maybe November. And sailing for those in those days in the Mediterranean shut down during that time of the year. During those winter months for them, sailing shut down because the wind and the conditions got too dangerous for them on the sea. And so there was a period of three or four months that they would harbor somewhere. So that's what's happening. They had all that trouble getting all down to fair havens. And then they had to decide, will we move around the island a little further? And Paul was saying, man, this, our voyage is going to have troubles. But the discussion went on. They said, no, let's get over to Phoenix if we get the opportunity. Let's go over there and spend our winter. And so here's what happens. And you can follow in the scriptures. I'm mostly just going to summarize this for you. While they're there and they've made this decision to go to Phoenix, it says, after a few days, a nice, gentle south wind is blowing. Perfect for moving along the shore of Crete and getting over to Phoenix. And so off they go. But not far into the journey, the passage says that a nor'easter. Sounds like they were from Newfoundland or something, doesn't it? You know, a nor'easter started to blow in. So what's happening? Winds coming from the north and from the east start to blow against them. They started with this southerly flow, which you could see would be great for getting them up to Phoenix. But a nor'easter comes not far into the journey, and it's ripping around that western end of Crete and slams into the ship. It says it's a hurricane-force storm that they've sailed into. And so rather than being able to move around the island and find their way to where they want to end up at Phoenix, they had no choice but to give in to it. They had to give in to the wind. The ship there's on doesn't have the maneuverability. And so this mighty wind hits them and begins to blow them way off course. And at the first chance they get, it says they passed a small island. And when they got on the lee side of the island, they hauled in the lifeboats. Now, lifeboats in those days were dragged behind the ship. And so they started to haul it in because it was filling with water. It was going to capsize. And it says that they could hardly do it. They barely got the lifeboat onto the ship and they started to blow. And they got so concerned that they pass ropes under the ship. I can't, you know, we can't fathom that type of thing. What they would do is they would go to the front of the boat and there'd be a guy on both sides on the, on the what is it, starboard and port and starboard sides. You can tell how much of a seaman I am. Right? So one guy on each side would hold the rope, they'd throw it over the front and they'd walk to the back of the boat and then they would tie it off. And then they would strap all these ropes under the ship. Why are they doing that? Because the storm is so fierce that they're afraid the ship is just going to break apart. So they have to add extra, extra binding to it. And then they begin to fear that they're going to be driven to the sandbars of Sirtis. What Sirtis is, if they got blown to the south, really they'd be blown down towards Africa. 
And off the shores of, Actra, uh, of Africa were these treacherous shoals and sandbars. And so they're now afraid they're going to get blown down there and run aground there and perish. And so what they do is, is that they drop the sea anchor. Do you hear all these things that Luke is sharing? He's living in the midst of this. And what's going on? The sea anchor would either be a huge a sail, basically, that they would throw up behind the ship. Sometimes it was a large piece of wood that would float. But it was so that the ship would not be blown, but rather they would be at the, really at the mercy of the currents at that point. Right? So rather than being blown to the south, the prevailing current was west. And so they put the sea anchor out and would take down their mainsail and drift and hoping that the currents would keep them from being driven onto the shores of Africa. So you see that line from Phoenix. It starts to swing a little south and then this writer shows that it's moving to the west. These men are getting terrified by what's going on. And then it says on the third day they started throwing the ship's no, the next day it says they lightened by throwing cargo overboard. Remember, this is a business ship. Cargo is their livelihood. And they start throwing it overboard. The next day, it says, the third day, they started throwing the ship's tackle overboard. You start throwing your tackle over, you are getting desperate. They're doing all this in order to lighten the ship because the waves would have been so overwhelming that they want the ship to kind of sit higher in the water so that the waves won't crash into it and fills it. And it brings us now to verse 20. Verse 20 says, When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storms continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. They gave up all hope. Traveling blind on an ocean in a storm for all these days. Seasoned sailors. Soldiers of the Roman army. Giving up hope. And it's at this point that the Apostle Paul steps up. It's the second time he's going to speak. His first was a warning, remember. But at this time, he stands up among them. Verse 21, he says, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. It's, it's a little bit of an I told you so moment. <laughs> you know, I wish we'd listened. But I don't think Paul's rebuking them here. He's saying, I was right then. You need to listen now. And he really says, I've got some good news and some bad news. <laughs> he says, I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. <laughs> good news, bad news. You're not going to die, but the ship's going to get totaled. But now I urge you, keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, 
we must run aground on some island. And I would suggest to you, this is the high point in this narrative. This is the high point in all that is, is taking place. It's the crux of the story as it's being broken open for us. I mean, in the big context of the book of Acts, this story is all about moving the gospel into all of the world. It's getting the gospel to Rome. It's moving Paul to Rome. It's finishing, in a sense, his story and the spreading of the gospel. That's the large context. But the personal power, the really individual story here is seen as Paul stands in this storm. And he makes this declaration of his covenant relationship with the living God, the God of creation, the God of this storm. And he stands there and he says, the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, his angel stood beside me. Don't be afraid. Do you get this? God communicates. God stands with his servants. God stands alongside him and is about to demonstrate his glory. Reminds me of another storm in the scriptures. There was another moment when a man had to stand in the midst of the storm and make a declaration. It was another missionary. It's a man by the name of Jonah. Do you remember him? He had to stand up in the middle of a storm and say, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the seas and the land. He made the declaration finally of who he was in the presence of God, but he was coming from a place of disobedience. And in his disobedience, he said to the sailors there, throw me into the sea, and then your troubles will be over. And the sailors in that case were terrified because there was something about Jonah's demeanor and how he made that declaration that they believed him as well, that this God who he worshipped and served needed to be obeyed, and they threw Jonah overboard, and the seas quieted. Paul's standing declaration is a different case, though, isn't it? He's standing in obedience. He's standing and saying, this is who my God is, and this is who I serve. And it's really his call to faith to all of them who are on board ship. It's his call to believe. I can only imagine Luke as he's writing this, as he's thinking about it all later. You know, everybody's giving up hope. He must have been giving up hope. I suspect that he was a part of that crew that was trying to haul the lifeboat on. It's one of those wee moments. We could hardly get the boat back on. He had blisters on his hands, yanking on that rope, and it just felt so, so much that they were not going to make it through this. He watched as hopelessness overcame the sailors. But the storm rages on. But then his friend Paul, his master, his mentor, stands and makes this incredible declaration. And in that moment, Luke understands that God was stepping in and reminding them that hope is found in our covenant with God. To be able to say, he is my God, I am his servant. And in the midst of our storms, we need to know where our confidence lies, don't we? We need to know that storms are not where we live, but they do come along. And storms take all kinds of shapes. 
Don't know what your storm might be today. Health, finances, relationships, family. You know, we all have all kinds of storms that can rage in one way or another. But an account like this reminds us that we as the people of God, we as the followers of Jesus Christ can stand in any storm and say, He is my God and I am His servant. He is the one who has brought me into covenant relationship and salvation. That by faith in Jesus Christ, my sins have been forgiven and I am brought into its everlasting family, his kingdom forever. The one who rules the wind and the waves is the one who walks with me. And in the midst of our storms, we can count on and trust for God to bless, to communicate, to encourage, to come alongside us. In this moment, it was an angel that came to minister to Paul. Probably for most of us, it won't be an experience, but it could be. But God communicates by His Spirit. I mean, that's been just an, uh, you know, a, a topic on top of all the study we've had in Acts, is the understanding this is the Spirit at work in the church and in the world. And to have the expectation that God's Spirit will speak to our hearts and minister to us and move us forward in mission and purpose and encouragement. That in the midst of the storm that we can be quiet and come in prayer, that we can come in fellowship, we can come in the Word, and that we can see how God is going to carry us through the storm. See, that's the messenger of God standing and making this declaration that people might follow him in faith. Will they believe? And I would suggest that the rest of the story is the unfolding how Paul keeps them all on track with this promise of God to them. After 14 days of storm, 14 days, two weeks to cross the Mediterranean. We've got the map again? Yeah. That journey is a journey totally in the midst of a storm for 14 days. Do you remember it started out, it was just going to be a day's journey? It's kind of a Gilligan's Island type of thing, eh? A three-hour tour. Are you guys all too young for that? <laughs> You know, what they thought was just going to be one day, they took off, and two weeks later, they're on this ship in the middle of a storm facing shipwreck. And as they, after 14 days, and as Paul has stood and given this blessing that don't be afraid, 14 days in the night, the sailors... I doubt they were sleeping, but maybe they woke up. They woke up to a new sound. And it was the sound of waves crashing against the land. And they were confident that they were approaching land. They took soundings. Again, the details. They took soundings. They dropped the sounding ball to the bottom, and it was 120 feet deep. A little while later, they dropped it again, and it was 90 feet deep, 30 feet different in this short period of time. And the sailors understood they were rushing towards something. They didn't even know what it was yet. 
And so they dropped four anchors from the back of the ship. And it says they prayed for daylight to come. Four anchors from the back of the ship. St. Paul's Bay on Malta, they've discovered four anchors out just past the sandbar. And in the sailors at that point thought their lives were worth more than everybody else's. Because what they did was they attempted to escape and they let the lifeboat down without telling anybody else. And their plan was really every man for themselves. They were going to get into the boat, head off, and get into shore and leave everybody else out there on the ship. But Paul somehow found out about this and he told the soldiers and he said, we need them to stay on the ship. I imagine it was just the sense, we need sailors. You know, this journey isn't done yet. We can't let them escape. But he also says the promise is that everyone will be saved. And so the soldiers believed Paul and they cut the rope to the lifeboat so the sailors weren't able to leave. And so they're all praying for daylight now. And just before dawn, we read that Paul called them all to eat. He calls them to a meal. He says, you've been going without food. You need to eat. And he stands and he says, everybody get the food ready. And in the midst of this storm, it says, Paul took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he began to eat. We, of course, can't help but hear communion in that. We can't help but hear this act of worship that Paul engages in. Paul is saying in the midst of the storm, oh God, I still praise you. You are in control and Jesus, my Savior, has given himself for me. And it says the ship is in, the crew is encouraged. They see Paul's faith in this moment. And an interesting comment is all 276 people on board ate as much as they wanted and then they threw the rest of the cargo into the sea. The final lightning of the ship. Everything is out now. Because what's going to happen the next day is they're going to try to ground the ship. Verse 39 to 41. We'll pick it up again here and basically just read it through for the end. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land. But they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. The rudders were basically two huge paddles that were probably out the back, which they had lifted during the time of being driven. So now they're getting ready to steer the thing again. And then they would have hoisted the foresail to the wind, praying that it was just going to drive them right into the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. And the bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. Can you see the ship's company huddling now on the front of the ship because the back is starting to be bashed and broken by the waves? So close, but they're not quite there yet. And it's the soldiers' turn to panic this time. It's the soldiers' turn to panic because they, at this moment, think we are going to perish, most of us. And so they plan to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. Because if any of them escape, it's their necks on the line. But the centurion, Julius, 
wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest were to get there on planks or other pieces of the ship. The centurion Julius steps up once again, showing his respect and confidence in who Paul is. I can only think that Julius has been a long part of Paul's story. I can only think that somehow he was a part of all the testimonies and the court cases and overseeing Paul, all that was taking place back in Caesarea, because he has garnered such a respect and an appreciation for who Paul is that he protects him right here to the end. And not only him, but everyone, because he's heard Paul's words. No one is going to perish. He sees that Paul is genuine, that God is with him, and Paul was his servant. And it takes you to the very last comment of the story. In this way, everyone reached land safely. Isn't that, isn't that phenomenal? Everyone reached land safely. Paul's words in the middle of the storm that the angel had given him, don't be afraid, not one person is going to be lost. And can you picture Paul with me standing on the beach, dripping wet, affirming the God whom I belong to and whom I serve has been faithful. Jesse, you and the team can come back up as we wrap up here. See, what's happened in the midst of this storm this incredible moving of Paul to Rome, this stop, and as Luke writes about it, he's really saying that the strongest of all natural forces that were threatening Paul's existence have been unable to thwart God's providential purposes for him. Soldiers and sailors and prisoners learned the, the solidarity of standing with Paul, this man of God who declared himself to be faithful. And as we consider Christ's claims, as we consider the storms of our life, the question for us is just very simple. Where do we stand? Where are we in the midst of all that is taking place? What's your foundation in the storm? Jesus said these words, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Jesus will stand with us in the storm as we have given ourselves to him. Let's pray together. Father, help us, O oh God, to understand through this very vivid story, an incredible narrative, God, that we can get caught up in the picture, but God, by your spirit, would you touch our hearts today with the reality of who you are and who we are? May we say in our hearts that you are our God. We are your servants. We are your people. And Father, may that be our confidence that whatever we face, that that's our foundation. And there's no turning away from that because you will walk with us through whatever comes. Amen.